are listening to the fourth episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where we walk down the sidewalks of Memory Lane to take a look at the comic that made Dave fall in love with Daredevil. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the greatest internet radio show about Daredevil, hosted by J. David Weeder, at least. That would be me, but you can call me Dave. And this week, uh, this week's kind of a really interesting episode. It's kind of one of the episodes I really wanted to do when I sat down to lay out what I was going to cover, because, you know, you never forget your first time. First day of school, first date, your first kiss, the first Daredevil comic you ever read. For me, it was the summer of 1986, and I lived at this little, simple white house on the north side of my little town, and it was a hot summer. The house did not have air conditioning. So as you can imagine, I was outside playing most of the time. Uh, the front yard had a couple of big trees, as it turned out, and so it was constantly shady there. So it was a little bit cooler outside than inside. And here in this front yard, I had what I call my little perch. See, from the tiny little front porch was a set of steps that led to a sidewalk that led to the edge of the yard where it kind of dropped off in a little hill. And there were steps that led up to that sidewalk. And those steps were kind of my domain, my perch, my view of the world. The The top of the sidewalk, where the sidewalk actually began, was my little play area, sort of like a table, where the first and second steps, those are my seats. Uh, this was the, the spot, I mean my spot, where I would read comics, or play with action figures, superpowers, silverhawks, real Ghostbusters figures, lots of Kenner stuff in there. But you get the idea. And the issue in question was picked up thanks to an anonymous donation to the American Legion post that my grandmother volunteered at. These two milk crates and one cardboard box of coverless aged comics arrived as donations to the gift shop, and they sold for 50 cents a piece. Nestled within the Spider-Mans, the Conans, the Fantastic Fours, and way more was a copy of Marvel Adventure featuring Daredevil, issue 5. Now, I didn't realize that was the name of the book. I thought it was just an issue of Daredevil, but Marvel Adventure, as it turns out, was a short-lived reprint book. And it worked kind of like Marvel Tales did for Spider-Man. Old issues of Daredevil were reprinted to make them available to new generations of readers. We didn't have digital we didn't have trade paperbacks, really. There were only a few out there. And the series itself only lasted six issues. But man, am I glad it was there because it reprinted Daredevil issue 26, which introduced me to Daredevil. And I was immediately entranced for reasons we're going to be getting into within the issue. And I made my own, well, sort of Daredevil costume. See, it was too hot for a hoodie or anything of authenticity. So what I used was actually a cheap set of cardboard glasses. These were like your 3D glasses. Instead of the 3D lenses, there were these holograms. Like, they think they were stars. And I used a couple of sticks for the billy club, which was pretty ingenious. I mean, pretty straightforward. But with that, I went bounding around, pretending to fight Stiltman and trying to, you know, tell my friends about Daredevil because, as it turns out, they had never even heard of him. And I thought that Daredevil was this completely obscure character. And that meant he was mine. And I loved that aspect. And I think I still do to some extent. Though, I'd find out that he did have, of course, some history. He was a Marvel mainstay. Because months later, at this Christmas outlet store, and this is the kind of store that pops up around the holidays, usually selling overstock items, things like that. 
but at this store I spied the most amazing thing, a three-pack of Secret Wars figures. The three-pack included Spider-Man in the black costume, Captain America, and Daredevil. And I begged and begged to have that thrown into my gift pile, but it was not to be. In fact, I wouldn't even get a Secret Wars Daredevil figure until a couple of months ago, actually. Now, at that time, I was just jazzed because, there, you know, there had been a figure made of this character that I had only heard of. Only me. At least in my perception. And, uh, I mean, oh, and it was kind of a big deal, really. That was the first Daredevil figure. Um, he was overlooked for the Mego line. And then we wouldn't see another figure come down the pike until Doipiz got the license in the 90s. And that had the exploding grappling hook, which is, uh, well, it's not a cane. It doesn't even look remotely like a cane. It looks like a cannon. Anyway, in a way, I'm glad I did not get the Daredevil figure then, because the figure, by all reports of my own experience, doesn't hold up to the test of time just the way it was made. Since they used the same basic body mold for everybody and painted on the details, a lot of the costume details wore off. So you'd lose his D's, you'd lose the belt, so on and so forth. And the arms and legs seemed to fade in color. Uh, the flesh that's painted on the red plastic, where Daredevil's mask is, would wear off. So you just have a red-faced thing. And indeed, even though my figure came out of the package just a few months ago, the red of the arms and legs actually rubbed off on my hand. So I put it right back in the package, that's where it's displayed. But the point of the story is, there was a Daredevil figure, and it blew my mind. And here's the unique thing, folks. Here's the thing about Daredevil that no other character really has before him for me. He was the first character to grab me purely from the comic book material. Because as much as I love Superman, I was introduced to him on Super Friends. As much as I love the Hulk, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno were my, you know, inauguration into that. I met those characters through different media and then followed them into the comics. Natural progression that way. Daredevil was wholly organic to the comic page for me, and the reason being that there just wasn't any other media. He wouldn't appear in any other media for years. Uh, first time that comes to mind was when Rex Smith played him on Trial of the Incredible Hulk. I don't think I am missing anything in there, though. And the timing was interesting, too, because of the way I was informed of Daredevil, my perception of Daredevil, because, think about this, it was the summer of 1986, Frank Miller was finishing up Born Again that summer, and Nacenti was about to do her long run on the book. But these weren't the comics that would inform my opinion of Daredevil. They would go on to expand that and challenge that and maybe revise it a bit. But my Daredevil was the Daredevil that I was reading from the 60s, although to be fair, I thought it was from the 70s. Reason being, a lot of the books that appeared in those magical milk crates were predominantly from the 1970s, particularly 1977. And that was the year I was born. So in my head, just as an offshoot, just as a tangent... I had a fantasy world where I made a time loop where I was the one who left the comics in 1986, forming a cool time paradox, guaranteeing I'm a comic fan for life. Now, in reality, I'm never going to know who left all those glorious, worn down, coverless pieces of heaven, but whoever they are, thank you. Now, in prep for this episode, just as another side note, I actually sat down and showed my wife this week's issue, and I told her all about those comics, and it hit me. The best part of this show, actually, is that it's endorsed by my wife rather than tolerated. She digs Daredevil, she digs the show, and, you know, when I go in to give her little tidbits or facts, she's actually quite interested. In fact, she actually became an active participant by helping me form the playlist that I write these episodes to. I like to have music to listen to. Mood music, if you will. And she actually sat down with me. I went over this. She saw what it was that sparked my fascination with the character. And in just a moment, you will too, but it was cool 
to be able to share that with my wife and a nice childhood memory. Good bonding moment. But we do have an issue to cover, folks, and I'm going off on tangents here, so I'm going to bring it back into focus. We're going to take a look at Daredevil number 26, but first a podcast promo break. After that, we have Stiltman, Leapfrog, The Masked Marauder, and Mike Murdoch. Who the heck is Mike Murdoch? Find out about Mike when we crack open Daredevil number 26 right after this promo. Okay, wow. Sorry I'm late. Let's see, what do we got here? Wow, this this is a lot more stuff than last time. All this for a new promo for Trendus Magnus Punches Reality? Okay, whatever. No, 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 I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready. Let's just bash through this. I got a plane to catch. It's for this year's Golden Headset Awards. Uh, word is my auditory orgasm of a podcast has been nominated for basically everything, and because it's me, we all know I'm going to win, so I really can't be late for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let, let's roll it. Let's roll it. Prentice Magnus punches reality. Listen as Magnus discusses comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's like porn for your ears. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's where awesome and epic go to relax after a long day. Trentus Magnus punches reality. After all, a million monkeys at a million typewriters can't be wrong. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because deep down inside, you know Magnus is right. Trentus Magnus punches reality. The People's Comic Book Podcast. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because you, that's why. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at magnus.libson.com. Okay, great. Are we good? We good? We got everything? All right, great. Thanks a lot. Whatever your name is. Bye. And we have returned to crack open Daredevil issue 26, which was the March 1967 issue. And since the last time we saw Old Hornhead, a few things have gone on in the pages of the comic. The Owl returned to menace Daredevil in issues 20 and 21. The Gladiator made a second run in issues 22 and 23. And Kazar completed a repeat trifecta in issue 24. Now in issue 25, Daredevil fought and captured the villain Leapfrog, who is about to go on trial as the issue starts. Yes, it's important to the plot, that's why I mention it. Because he is represented by Nelson and Murdoch. Oh, and a villain called the Masked Marauder has been hatching plots to find out the true identity of Daredevil. That old chestnut. 
This time around, Stan Lee once again writes the story, which is entitled Stilt Man Strikes Again. As the cover says, it's not the most creative title. However, John Romita has departed the comic, as we mentioned a little bit last week. He moved on to Amazing Spider-Man. Now, that would make me sad, since I love John Romita. However, Gene Colan is providing the art for this issue. Gene colon the definitive daredevil artist with no disrespect to anyone like frank miller or john romita jr but colon had a solid 80 plus issues under his belt and his daredevil was the house style for decades colon himself joined marvel's predecessor timely comics after his service in the air force and he mostly did war comics at that time now under the marvel banner he reintroduced the submariner in a strip that ran through tales to astonish and it was the main feature with the Hulk in the backups for quite a while. He had a solid run on that book from issue 70 to 85. And then Colin also took over the Iron Man feature in Tales of Suspense, with a run on that title that ran through issues 73 through 99. Now, beyond his run on Daredevil, Colin has also co-created Blade, the Vampire Hunter, under the horror title Tomb of Dracula. Um, his run on that book ran an amazing 70-odd issue, starting at the title's beginning. He also helped usher in Howard the Duck before heading to DC where he had a solid run on Batman from 82 to 86. He was a two-time Eagle Award winner. He was an Eisner Award winner as well as part of the Will Eisner Hall of Fame. Now when I close my eyes, and probably a lot of people will share this, when we close our eyes, we picture Daredevil. Just that first thing that pops in your head, it's normally going to be Gene Colan's Daredevil. For me, it's hands down. There's no doubt. Once again, I mean, that was the house style for a long time. These early comics were kind of my definitive Daredevil, so it does make sense. Now, looking at the cover of our issue here, uh, this wasn't part of my original reading experience. I told you it had no cover. It was a reprint. But the cover is extremely dizzying because we have Daredevil high above the city below. We're facing down, facing down. So Daredevil and Stiltman are up in the air and he's facing Stiltman. Uh, Stiltman is grabbing Daredevil's belly club and the angle is just amazing. Because you can actually manage to follow Stiltman's amazingly tall mechanical legs all the way down to street level. Now, on Marvel Digital Unlimited, the, the copy that I read, this looks solid. Daredevil pops off the page, Stiltman looks incredible, and the city does feel far below us because it's drawn a little bit differently. Where we have crisp pencils on the figures, the city itself is sort of a, sort of a gray tone, I guess, would be the term. Now, in the essential, when I double-checked it to see if it held up, because I like running through those as well to see if the black and white compares to the color, so on and so forth. But in the essential, it doesn't fly. The background, it looks more washed out in those gray tones. So the color really does add something to this, because it looked blurry in the other, but looks sharp on the actual cover itself, or on the digital cover. Uh, the composition itself is kind of the masterwork, because you don't immediately look at it and see the complexity. It's not extremely noticeable at a glance. But if you take more than a moment to look at it, boom, there it is. So, let's open up this issue and take a look at Stiltman Strikes Again. The story opens with Daredevil swinging across New York, making great time and getting to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch. Dee Dee gets back to the office and begins to change into his Matt Murdock clothes, but decides against it, as it's more fun to pretend to be Mike Murdock, his own fake twin brother. Matt messes up his hair, throws on some wraparound sunglasses, and hams it up as the freewheeling, easygoing Mike as Karen and Foggy decide to talk to Mike rather than leave for their appointments. While Karen is actually really into Mike, Foggy can't stand him, and Foggy's mind is on defending the supervillain, the Leapfrog, who is due to go on trial the next day. Mike 
Matt, whoever he is, asks to come and watch the trial, which Foggy is hesitant to allow, but Karen says that Mike deserves a seat, since it is Mike Murdock who captured Leapfrog as Daredevil. I know, stay with me. Foggy relents, and as the trio are leaving the law offices, their building owner, Mr. Farnham, stops them, asking why they would defend a villain such as the Leapfrog. Even though Foggy is more into contract law and isn't especially excited to be doing criminal law, he insists that everybody deserves a fair trial. And the trio leave Farnham, gearing up for the next day's court date. And that's actually a good point to pause a moment and take a look at what we have read. Now, as soon as you open up the book, you are greeted with this title page of Daredevil leaping from the left of the page, doing a somersault along the way. Now, I actually put this image up on the Facebook page quite a while back when this episode airs. So, but if you if you scroll back before the first episode was released, I was putting out images. This was one of them. It was my first introduction, really. And there's no doubt in my mind that this page, which essentially would have served as my cover for the original comic, first thing I saw... It also served as an attention getter and wrote me in. Uh, you know, as I'm going through all those books, buying them up, it's what helped put this book a little bit higher up on the list. It is awesome, glorious, beautiful. It is pure Daredevil. And I would totally remove the text, place a generic cityscape or something in the background and print this up as a pinup very easily. No issues at all. Now, unlike the cover, the image here on the title page works in the essential and in black and white. It just looks maybe in some ways more solid in black and white. Now, as soon as I reopened this issue, I remembered this page and just sitting gape-jawed staring at it because it does the motion effect here. Daredevil's uh, colored a little bit lighter in certain segments in his past steps, if you will, versus his current pose. And just the leaping was fascinating. The final pose is Daredevil rushing into action or into his next leap. To stand alone, it tells a story that Daredevil's a man of action. Now, the last leap does take us into the story proper and to Daredevil making his way across New York, through a gorgeous campus, over a busy New York street, where a couple of guys casually say, oh, it's just another superhero. For us, a dude in a devil costume swinging overhead is kind of a big deal. It's kind of an interesting day. You know it can only go down from there, but in the Marvel Universe New York, it's every other Tuesday. This is what happens. And, okay, so he decides to be Mike Murdock, his own twin. We probably need to talk about this. Now, prepare to have your mind twisted around this idea. Foggy and Karen were starting to suspect that Matt is Daredevil. They're starting to clue in a little bit that something's up there. So, he decided to throw them off the trail. To do this, he created his own fictional twin, Mike Murdock, who is Daredevil, who can see. So, yes, you're thinking correctly. Matt pretends to be Mike who is Daredevil, but Mike is really Matt, who really is Daredevil. And in the end, they're the same guy. And the crazy idea is, this is working. Karen and Foggy are buying into Matt's story, which, okay, Karen I can see. She hasn't been in Matt's life that long. You thought I was going to go for the low blow there, no. But no, she hasn't been around that long. Sure, he could have a twin. That I kind of understand. Foggy? College-educated Foggy? Even if we are talking about a man who himself pretended to be Daredevil to impress Karen, we also have to factor in that Foggy has known Matt for years. At least six years. To account for college and sometimes since they opened the law firm, just natural progression. Not to mention, Foggy not only knew Matt for years, he was around when Jack Murdock was alive. As we saw in the first issue, he was at Jack's last fight. Somehow... Foggy just decides that Matt must have had a twin brother. And even with the sliver of a no prize that says Mike may have been at another college, which would have been fair, 
wouldn't Matt have made some small mention in six years? And Jack Murdoch had a funeral or at least a graveside service. There would have been at least a handful of people there. Wouldn't there have been, by chance, uh, somebody mentioning that a twin brother was missing? Or wouldn't Matt have twin pictures in the Murdoch apartment? Because he had to go clean out Jack's stuff at some point, right? And it stands to reason that Foggy, his only and closest friend, would have gone to help him. And why would Matt not have any pictures of his brother in the college dorm? These are the things I think about, and then I just shove them to the side. Because it's fun. I'm having fun. I love the concept of a man pretending to be his own twin. It's very sitcom-like, and I'm good with that. Comics don't always have to be high drama. They don't always have to be well-put-together, solid narrative. Sometimes, I just want to enjoy a book. And if Matt Murdock pretending to be Mike Murdock is what brings me that, fine. But I am going to put out those arguments that it doesn't necessarily make sense that Foggy buys in. However, however, when you think about it, Foggy did eventually find out Matt is Daredevil. So he puts together the Mike Murdock thing. How far down the line was that? 348. Issue 348 is where Foggy figured out Matt is Daredevil. That's a solid amount of time. That's almost at the end of Volume 1. I wonder if that says something about Foggy that maybe I'm missing. Maybe I'm putting too much faith in Foggy. I mean, the man did dress as Daredevil to impress a girl. And then took her down to the docks. Just saying. So how does Matt become Mike? What is the method? Well, it's funny I use that word because he does use some method acting. He even mentions it. But ultimately, as mentioned in the, in the synopsis, he throws on this horrible outfit that makes him look like a pimp. Once again, picture a pimp in your head. You got it. And we're talking yellow vest. Certified pimp hat with a big feather. And let's not forget the wraparound sunglasses. I mean, the looks like he should be standing outside of a building when Christopher Reeve comes out saying, Whoa! Hey, Jim! Now, as, as ridiculous as I make it sound, and I do, it is that ridiculous. I'm not adding to this for embellishment, for entertainment purposes, for a laugh. It's no lie. He looks like a pimp. But once again, I love Mike Murdock. It's campy. It's silly. But every time I see Mike Murdock, I smile. And it's not really a spoiler to tell you how this all plays out, because we're going to be skipping ahead quite a bit. In fact, it'll make this story a little bit richer. Matt eventually fakes Mike's death. Which to Karen and Foggy means that Daredevil has effectively died. Okay? Stay with me. So Matt's fake twin brother, quote-unquote, dies. Matt's twin brother, who is Daredevil, dies. Daredevil dies. But... When Daredevil inevitably resurfaces because he didn't really die, everyone assumes that it is a whole new replacement. Not once does anyone say, hey, maybe Matt is Daredevil. Now, I'm not saying my powers of observation are so keen as to completely guess that the blind guy is the costumed hero, but there are a lot of coincidences here. And they all surround Matt. So Matt would at least be a factor in my theory if I were pursuing the secret identity of a costume vigilante. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't throw stones, since I recently discovered my lack of ability to roll down my windows properly. Because, you see, I was at this drive-thru, and I hit the button for the back window instead of the front window. Anyway, never mind. Now, if not Karen, then Foggy should have put together that Matt is Daredevil. And he should have done it on his own, and totally saw through Matt's guise. Yet, 348 issues in, that's when he finds out. Poor form, Stan Lee. Poor form to write a college and law school graduate whose idea of courting is putting on spandex and pretending to be his best friend. Ooh. Ooh, I wish I hadn't said that. Well, I wish I hadn't written it and then wish I hadn't said it. I should probably proofread that 
because to put it out on the table like that is a bit disturbing. So I'm going to abruptly change the subject from the Spandex Petticoat Junction Love Fest and look a bit closer at Matt's Billy Club and damn it, that was a poor choice of words. What I mean is, there was a recent upgrade to its design in the book, The Billy Club. Originally, the cane, which I might note has a curved handle, which is incorrect since the curved handle supports weight and a blind person's cane is used for guidance, but the cane split at or near the middle. The top half kept the curve, which Daredevil could use as a hook as the rope came out that section. The second half of that cane was a weighted fighting baton. Now, the split occurs again in this new upgrade, but there's a button that straightens the curve and allows a metal cable to extend and the cable itself curves into a hook. And while, you know, with my fear of heights, it's scary to think about swinging over the city with such a small hook to rely on to catch your fall, Gene Colan's art in issue 25, which has Daredevil demonstrating on a desk, kind of sold me on it. Because the cable does look strong, it looks like a metal cable, not a string. And the hook is plausible enough, and it allows for a sleeker design to the club. Now, as a side note, I also reread issue 8 because we're coming into Stiltman, and I wanted to see if it would allow me to expound a bit on Stiltman, but I got distracted by the snooper scope hidden in Daredevil's Billy Club. Essentially, it's this long spy microphone jammed into what probably should be a simple piece of weaponry, and among other things in Daredevil's Utility Club, nutrient capsules for nourishment on the go, a tape recorder, a sheet to wrap up villains, and a sniper rifle. A sniper rifle! Look, the Billy Club as a concept unto itself is actually quite fine, thank you. It's a solid, unique weapon and mode of transportation, and we don't need to cram Batman-style gadgets in there. What's next? Daredevil shark repellent? But I'm getting way off topic. Let's get back to our tale and see how our drama unfolds in the courtroom. As Foggy begins his opening arguments in the defense of the bouncing, frog-themed villain Leapfrog, the prosecution tries a little trick that would work for O.J. Simpson decades later. If it doesn't fit... You must acquit. See, Leapfrog's bouncing and leaping prowess comes from a pair of spring-loaded shoes, and the villain insists that they won't fit him, they're not his. So the prosecution allows him to try the shoes on in the courtroom, and the treacherous bastard starts bouncing around like Flubber as soon as his kicks are on. And he leaps out of the courtroom window, making what appears to be a daring escape, but it is actually incredibly stupid because the courtroom is three stories up, and the prosecution removed the shoe fasteners, meaning they fall off in mid-air. So, Leapfog falls three stories to the sidewalk below as the courtroom above goes crazy train and people scatter everywhere in the, in, in the chaos. Mike, Matt, whatever you want to call him, slips away to become Daredevil. But Leapfrog is alive, saved by the one shoe that did fasten. But he has a nice broken leg and a damaged pride. And he has fallen near the mechanical legs of Stiltman, who was there under the direction of the masked marauder to fetch Leapfrog. And Daredevil swings into action right at Stiltman, who dodges Hornhead by extending his mechanical legs and then snagging the cable, sending Daredevil into a wall. Daredevil rebounds, ducking the blast of Stiltman's laser gun and successfully makes a huge swing at Stiltman's face, knocking the villain backward. And before the story spins us into a flashback, let's take a look at how the whirlwind of events we just saw played out. Daredevil captured Leapfrog last issue and he's really not important to the overall story, but he wears a literal frog suit, as in a suit that looks like a frog and bounces around like Tigger. He wins the Darwin Award for this issue by jumping right out of a third story window before noticing that his shoes weren't laced up. By doing that, well, he makes Karen and Foggy look good on the dumb leaderboard. Speaking of Karen, okay, I have to admit, she looks hot under Colin's pen. 
and that makes some of her personality quirks more tolerable. And I know I give Karen a lot of flack, and I'm judging her based on some decisions she makes down the road. Many of you know what I'm referring to. I may not be completely fair to her all of the time, since she's an important piece of the Daredevil mythology, but man, does she irritate me. Just not in this issue. And actually, I distinctly remember thinking that Karen Page was hot when I read this, and imagine my surprise when I would eventually jump from this to Born Again, where Karen is completely different. But that is a discussion for another day. And even as Mike, our boy Murdoch, seems to be the smartest person in the room as he suggests measuring Leapfrog's foot rather than, you know, put the shoes on him, you know, a method of escape. And typically, I don't do extensive page-by-page -page notes. I speak more generally about the sections of the story and the specifics of it and the characters, but pages 10 to 14 are a solid, solid action sequence. Daredevil swings into action, and especially on page 10, Colin uses the key to an awesome Daredevil. Shadows in the use of, restraint of, shadows. And when I say that Daredevil swings into action, I mean that Colin makes a dynamic, eye-popping, swinging Daredevil. The motion is just so awesome, and Hornhead looks phenomenal without repeating a pose. The action flows, and it moves fast without sacrificing the blow-by-blow, -blow, which is easy and clear to follow. And the hits look solid. They look like they hurt. Even at 36 versus age 8, I can still get a bit excited looking at the awesome layouts Colin provides me, and it's no wonder that this issue drew me in and garnered reread after reread on my little perch at the edge of the sidewalk. This issue still gets my blood flowing, even with Stiltman as the main villain. And let me talk a bit about Stiltman, who I mentioned appeared way back in issue 8. He takes a lot of crap as a villain. To some extent, the snarky remarks are true. His gimmick is a pair of telescoping robot legs that grant him height. He doesn't change size, but he gets taller. I get it. He has a lame gimmick. I know this. But the reason I will defend my love for Stiltman is this. Whether you want to admit it or not, the gimmick works. He's not like the Matador who appeared for one issue and then disappeared. He's a good foil for the acrobatic Daredevil, because he's a jungle gem in himself. And he also has the deafness to dodge Daredevil's blows. Now, Stiltman, a character whose real name is Wilbur. Wilbur Day. Wilbur! Actually provides a solid fight for the man without fear. And let me fill you in a bit on the flashback that the story provides. Because Stiltman caused some havoc in issue 8 but was zapped by a shrinking ray, which made it seem that he shrank out of existence. However, the ray's effects wore off, and he is back and doing the work of the criminal mastermind who has been plaguing Daredevil, the mysterious Masked Marauder. Now, who is the Masked Marauder? It's an interesting question, and I phrase it that way specifically because readers had been asking that question since Daredevil number 16. Now, he tricks Spider-Man and Daredevil into fighting each other there. But, as we jump back into the story, we're going to see that that revelation is actually quite simply laid on us. Because the masked marauder uses this retractable tube device to climb into the office of Nelson and Murdoch to go through their files, suspecting that even if one of them isn't Daredevil, the duo know the true identity of the man without fear. The masked marauder finds nothing, so he slips off his mask to stand revealed to the reader as Mr. Farnham, Matt and Foggy's landlord? Who knew? Meanwhile, Daredevil finishes his fight with Stiltman by using the swinging line of his billy club to wrap Stiltman's legs together and send the villain toppling over into an empty alleyway. With the day saved, Daredevil tries to disperse the crowd that has arrived at the scene of the fight, and while Hornhead is distracted, Farnham grabs Stiltman and throws him into the back of his car, and Daredevil makes the mistake of calling Farnham by name. 
which lets the masked marauder know that Daredevil must be somebody that he knows before making a clean getaway. And the story closes with the crowd applauding Daredevil for stopping Leapfrog's escape as Karen thinks about how cool it is that she and Foggy know Daredevil's secret identity. So ends the issue. Now the third act of the issue kind of goes directly to falling action. But it's actually pretty well rounded altogether, just a little bit front-loaded. Because the fight between Stiltman and Daredevil is advertised on the cover. It actually happens. That's why you bought the comic, was to see this fight. But when it happens, it happens with a lot of kinetic panels. Uh, it's just abruptly halted by a flashback in the middle explaining who Stiltman is and how he is back. That brings the issue to a screeching halt. And then when we return from the flashback, we're following the Masked Marauder. Now, I mentioned in the breakdown how the Masked Marauder used a tube to enter the open window. It has some sort of uh, vacuum. And it's the same window that Matt used earlier to enter the building, mentioning, oh, if this is not shut, I may run into it. Well set up, actually. Because we do get that mention of how Matt leaves his office window open to allow him to swing into the office. So the device is also kind of cool. It's like a giant hollow screw that rotates up and allows a tunnel of sorts. And apparently it's vacuum powered, which doesn't make sense because you'd have to have something at the other end to counteract that, I would think. But it looks somewhat logical. Now, however, even with some fairly tight setup and a canny way to use the device, we learn in true Scooby-Doo style that it is Old Man Farnham who owns the office building, who is the Masked Marauder. Now, you caught that right. I want you to go back over that again. Old Man Farnham, who owns the office building. He owns the office building. It is his. I don't think it's too far to leap to say that he probably has keys to the entire building, or at least access to the keys to the building, or at least he could make an excuse to enter the office while the lawyers are not there. So why go to all the trouble to use this device to break in? He could just wait and unlock the door, stroll right in, snoop through the files to see who Daredevil really is, but that wouldn't have been as exciting, correct? What are you going to do? Now, speaking of exciting, for as brief as the remainder of the Daredevil Stiltman fight is following the flashback break, it still moves. Daredevil's use of his billy club to squeeze Stiltman's legs together looks awesome, and it makes sense. It's also another humiliating defeat for Stiltman, which is another way his gimmick works. However, it's not the worst defeat. That, in my opinion, comes way down the road when Stiltman pulls his mechanical legs out of their longtime storage space, and Daredevil uses the nests of roaches inside them to defeat Stiltman. Oh, oh. Now, as we close out the issue in the episode, um. I have just a few final thoughts. And while this may not be the strongest issue of Daredevil ever put on a spinner rack, it sure holds a strong place in my heart. Gene Colan's rendition of Daredevil set the bar for further artists in my opinion, and it was a very high bar. His action sequences inform my sense of a whiz-bang high-wire Daredevil action sequence, and very few have even touched that bar. Plus, it brings me a smile to look at it and remember that hot summer day sitting in the shade on my little perch wondering where Daredevil had been all of my eight years. How had I never looked at this guy? He's a, a competent fighter, he has a hot girl, a cool villain, and he's unique. To revisit this issue was to reawaken that feeling. The feeling of picking up some twigs, tying them together with a shoestring, leaping around my yard with a makeshift billy club, scraping my knees on the trees that I climbed. That is in essence what a good comic is supposed to do. Ignite passion in a character or story. Jumpstart the imagination. Daredevil number 26, or more accurately, the slightly yellow dingy reprint that I read, did that, and it still does. Now I just have a curtain rod that I tied together for a billy club, but it's it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be able to share this issue with you. 
And if you want to read this as well, it is reprinted in the Essential Daredevil Volume 2, as well as on Marvel Digital Unlimited. It is also in the Marvel Masterworks Volume 41 and Marvel Adventure featuring Daredevil Issue 5. Now, as a side note, I drove by that little white house just a few days ago, just passing through the old neighborhood, and I pulled over for a moment and saw that sidewalk. And my perch, they are still there. Untouched, it seemed. The house looked the same, except they added what looked like central air, and the fence between our yard and the neighbor's yard was gone. And that fence, where Sergeant Slaughter took his last stand, before him being lost in my neighbor's tall grass and getting chopped up only days later, a little piece of my heart was gone with that. Anyway, for a moment I thought about getting out of the car, and just going to sit on the perch for just a moment, just to kind of get in the right mindset for this episode, do a little method podcasting, if you will. But, you know, I've always said, and I will always say, that comics are like little time capsules, marking moments in our lives. That particular summer day wasn't anything extraordinary to the world. No revolutions in science, nothing like that. But it meant a lot to me. And sometimes, you know, I just wish I could have back a little bit of that childhood optimism. Just a skosh. Uh, but then, of course, the adult in me sitting there realized that sitting on a stranger's lawn is a bad plan. And when I went to explain that I'm trying to do this for a podcast would probably get me even deeper into trouble, I pulled back on the road and drove on. But there was something comforting in knowing that the perch was still there. And I could still get just a hint of my eight-year-old self by opening up a comic book. Maybe that's naive. Maybe that's overstating the importance of comics, but then again, I record shows about these books. I spend a lot of time with them. I'm not sure what that says about me, but there you go. Now, before we go, we have one quick thing to check out ourselves. The show's first email, our inaugural email, courtesy of Mr. Trentus Magnus. If you don't know Trentus Magnus, you are missing out. He hosts a show called Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, which is on the Two True Freaks podcast network, and he, he talks about comics in his own way. He's a bonafide awesome podcaster, at least in my book, and I recommend his show, not just because he emailed in. And to boot, this email came in right before the first episode was released, which was a first for me. His email has the subject line, Dave's Daredevil Podcast by Dave, and the email reads, Dave, I haven't even listened to your show yet, because it hasn't been released yet, but I consider myself a big Daredevil fan. Best of luck to you, we're all looking forward to hear what's coming. Signed, T. Now thank you, Trentus. I, I hope the show has lived up to some of your expectation. And I don't know if it was intentional or if I'm just assuming things, but I got the line from Airplane. Good luck. We're all counting on you. I don't know if that was intended, but that's where my headspace is. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where I was coming from in the early episodes, trying to find my footing on exactly how to edit the show, how to record it, how to keep it moving and how to make it exciting and, and listenable. I don't know if a Daredevil podcast can save the world, but I want to be that podcaster. Actually, I just want to make a good show. I want to make a good show. And hopefully, Trentus, I am living up to that expectation. I can tell you I am still psyched every time I sit down to do an episode. Even as I've written out notes through episode 10 at the time of this recording, probably even further by the time this hits air, which if anyone at home is doing the logistics, I am about three weeks ahead of schedule in terms of recording. But so far, there hasn't been any shred of reluctance because each Daredevil story has been new, it's been fun, it's been exciting, and there's more of that to be had, so... I'm very much looking forward to it. I appreciate your email, Trentus. Now, if you want to email the show, the address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com 
or at the handy contact form at daredevilpodcast.com. But that brings us to the end of the show. However, I will be back next week to pull out a crossover that features Daredevil in a boxing ring with the star-spangled Avenger himself, Captain America. That's in seven short days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can He's see in the, the dark. One. They call a man without fear. Never far away whenever danger's near. There's devil fight for what is right. There's devil fight for you tonight. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Ghost Rider, when you hear his name.